And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. It is Monday, July 19th. Eno, I saw a picture that you were at the beach, but it was cold because you warned me about this as a, a soon-to-be <laughs> Bay Area resident. The weather at the beach uh, in certain parts of the peninsula, it's not the 85-degree scorching day that many of us are accustomed to when we go to the beach. Yeah, I think it was pushing 59 when I <laughs> took that picture. <laughs> in July. That's so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, the, the key is, and the problem is, that uh, around 2 if the fog is going to burn off, it does. And so then it gets to about 65 uh, on nice days. It gets to 70, 75 sometimes even out there. Um, but the problem is that everybody sort of knows that. So it gets really crowded at two. And with kids, sometimes we're just like, hey, let's just go early and be cold. Yeah, you can't swim, but you can at least go to the beach and play in the sand. Kids were digging around in the sand, yeah. We And the dogs really enjoy it, even though we can't let them off leash because they're not that great. So <laughs> we have to kind of run along with them. But they, they really enjoy just the different sensory stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was a good day. They're a work in progress. They're they're good boys. They're they're learning to become good boys. That's what I would say. Right? Yeah. They're, they're trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You saw firsthand what it's like. And oh my gosh, it's happening. It's white behind you. You can see you're already packing. The teardown has begun. Possessions are making their way into friends and family's homes, giving things away as much as we possibly can, donating stuff. Uh, and I've kind of danced around this on a bunch of episodes. I am moving to the Bay Area. My wife got a job out there. So I'm leaving Wisconsin. I've lived here since I was in eighth grade. So it's been a long time. I've been either near Milwaukee or near Madison pretty much for all of my life at this point, at least all of the years I can remember for the most part. So it's going to be strange to leave, actually leaving in two weeks already. Yeah, two in two weeks, I'll be partway to California already. Uh, happens to be the Bay Area, so Eno and I will be pretty close and probably get to do some more fun like live events and different things we've hinted at before. So definitely exciting times, lots of change for me, and things will keep disappearing out of the backdrop if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> it, as you miss things, leave a comment for the items that you miss the most from the backdrop, and maybe they will reappear someday. If they hold a lot of value in your heart, maybe I will find room for them in my car. <laughs> no guarantees, though, because I think it's going to be a tricky tricky process. I, I want this to be just like this gradual process of the things behind you just being walked off by random people and you're still podcasting to the last second and like and somebody takes the whole set and you're like out in a field it would be pretty funny to see that happen i can imagine my father-in-law just deconstructing the entire apartment while i record and <laughs> yeah. like oh well, i didn't know that was actually something that would move that that door uh, you had to move it to get a treadmill out of here it'd, it'd be like the, the beginning scene when uh uh, Shit's Creek, when they're having all their things uh, repossessed, it would probably look a little bit like that with all the items just <laughs> vanishing <laughs> yeah. in the background. But uh, lots to get to on this episode and uh, some history actually to be made on Tuesday. Some really exciting stuff happening for the Orioles Rays game. This game's going to be broadcast on YouTube. It's a 710 Eastern first pitch. Melanie Newman, who does play by play for the Orioles radio network, is going to be the play by play announcer for that game. Sarah Langs, who we've heard on several of the athletic podcasts from MLB.com, she's going to be the in booth analyst. And then Alana Rizzo, who's been a on field reporter for the Dodgers in the past, she currently works at MLB Network. I think she appears on High Heat on a regular basis. She's going to be the field reporter for the game. And then Heidi Watney and Lauren Gardner are going to anchor the pre and post game shows. So, 
an awesome all-female crew. First time in Major League history that it's happening. And you know, the winds of progress are slow, but it's great to see things like this coming together. Yeah, it is really cool. I, I met uh, Melanie Newman. Uh, it must have been like a winter meetings or something. A long time ago, she was working for uh, Round Rock, I think, at the time. Uh, maybe announcing their games. Um, and so I've followed uh, her career uh, along closely and uh, support her. Uh, Sarah Langs has been sort of uh, exploded onto the scene with uh, her her great sense of numbers and um, her her really uh, like her impressively fast ability to sort of call upon uh, different sort of numbers and research. Um, I cannot do things that fast. <laughs> I've been like, I've been like, oh, let me look this thing up. Like this thing. And then she tweets it. <laughs> yes. You might recall back in October when we were doing the playoff shows at night, there were, there's probably no more than two shows out of 20 that went by where we didn't have a tweet from Sarah Langs because she was so good at pulling really good information very quickly. It absolutely, as you said, uh, just a, a really great crew up and down. And yeah, I think I met Melanie in the fall league one year. She was covering some of the oh, diamondbacks prospects. That must so. be it. That must be it. It must've been the fall league. That's it. The fall league's awesome. It's such a, a tight knit circle. If you sit in the press box for a game, you meet everybody because there's about four to five people at most there. And you're, <laughs> yeah. you're kind of like, so why are you here? Actually, that works in the stands, too, because there's only about 50 people in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what brings you to the Fall League? Um, yeah. so a, a great pitching matchup for that game on Tuesday, too. It's John Means against Shane McClanahan. And again, it's on YouTube, so you don't have to have an MLB TV subscription to watch it. 710 Eastern first pitch. And I think there was a great story that Britt wrote uh, two years ago. Melanie was calling games for the Salem Red Sox, and her and Susie Cool. Uh, worked together on about 30-plus games that year. And I think that was the first time uh, a two-female booth had called games in the minor leagues together, too. So more history being made this week. There's also an interesting thing here going on. Like, I'm sure somebody will bring up, like, oh, they didn't play. And, like, most booths have a former player in them. Um, but uh, it's a little bit like coaching, I think, where um, I don't think that the the main skill is playing you know what I mean? like the, no it's, it's the, really not like when you when you like the main skill for a coach is coaching <laughs> right? I'm, this may sound just stupid but like the main skill for a coach is coaching i think in other sports like everyone's totally fine with that <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. yes like jason kidd and steve nash are trying to be coaches but there are plenty of coaches in in the nba and in the nfl i mean uh just just look at some of their sizes <laughs> yeah andy reed great nfl yeah. player right yeah right kurt rambis yeah <laughs> i think i think for the most part uh in other sports they're a little bit more uh, like okay with the idea that like coaching is the main skill not necessarily playing um and i i think that's actually true of the booth because I, I think the main skills are analysis and storytelling you know that's those are the two keys and uh i think the best uh announcers and the best the best announcers i think spend time in the clubhouse getting to know the players and are like oh i was just talking to him the other day about blah 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 right um and uh the best analysis is quick and tells a good story um and doesn't get you bogged down in the details and sarah langs does that and melanie newman's a great storyteller so um i just wanted to sort of make that point about how um I, i'm not saying that uh, you know that players can't be great um, storytellers and, and some of them connect with modern day players and tell good stories. Uh, but I don't think that you, it's a requirement that you have played professional baseball to um, be that person in the booth. Yeah. It is not a prerequisite to being a great analyst and to adding color to a game and making the game more exciting. It's a lot of time to fill when you think about, broadcasting a baseball game start to finish like three to three and a half hours every single day if you don't tell interesting stories if you don't bring interesting information you will fall on your face there are so many boots out there that you listen to and you're just like wow you guys uh you guys fell a little short that will not be the case <laughs> on tuesday they're going to do a great job that's a great yeah. crew that was put together for that game 
Uh, the main topics on, on today's show, we had a bunch of questions trickling in as we often do. And I, I'm so appreciative of the quality of the questions that we get here. I would say that at least half of the emails we get are written like as questions that could go directly onto the rundown. And most of the other half can be pretty quickly modified or they're at least a thought starter for us to take a topic and, and turn it into something that we can talk about for a little while. And one of the main questions I wanted to get to is one that came in from Bill and boiling it down. It was basically, you know, what's on the rubric for grading pitchers for the future. And he was asking in the context of, playing for next year in a keeper or dynasty league. But I think this applies to just about every type of league, because if you're looking to pick a pitcher up for the stretch run or make a trade for a pitcher for the rest of the season, you're probably in many cases looking for someone who hasn't maxed out in value yet. Like, sure, you might be in a position in a keeper or dynasty league where you can throw some prospects at somebody and get back a top end guy. You can go out and you can go get Brandon Woodruff or Walker Bueller in a trade, but more often than not, you're trying to get somebody who hasn't fully popped just yet. And I think we, we need to kind of drill into what's different about the rubric for the long-term pitchers. This was on my mind over the weekend anyway, because I wrote about Jesus Lazardo for a little bit. He is struggling right now at AAA, and I wrote him up and suggested he's still a very good long-term trade target, a guy that you would actually want to put on your team's in keeper in dynasty leagues if you're playing for the future and someone that I would expect to have a lot of on my rosters and redraft leagues in 2022 because you know barring a great finish to this season Lazardo will cost less on draft day next season than he did throughout this draft season and the main thing that drew me to Lazardo is the number of pitches that he throws he throws four pitches and he mixes them all pretty effectively. We're talking about four pitches that he throws about 20% of the time or more each. That's pretty rare for a guy that young. And I think that's one of the traits that I'd be most excited about in the absence of, you know, stuff and command numbers that, that we get for guys that have debuted. It's kind of a mix. Like for guys that have debuted, you get a peek under the hood. You get to see a little bit of, of what's actually going on for guys that haven't or guys that have made very few starts it becomes a little bit more difficult and you have to find some other factors that you want to seek out as you look for these pitchers. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, um, I don't, uh, value, uh, pitching prospects very highly. And so, um, when it comes to minor league ones, um, I would say that almost any reason would be enough for me to pick them off the wire because there are different, ways for pitchers to be good right if you focus too hard too intently on one rubric you're going to miss other types of pitchers that are good so i would say like if a pitcher pops at you for any reason they're interesting so if they are even like alec mills and have that's a major league version but like have if you see like a 60 command on a, on a pitcher right um and good numbers. They're all going to have good numbers, right? <laughs> In the minor leagues. I mean, Lazardo's uh, having a, a little trouble right now, but most of these pitchers are going to have good numbers in the minor leagues. It's going to be like, why do I pick this guy up over this guy? And I would just say, look for something that looks elite. So if they have 60 command, pick them up. If they have a 60 fastball, pick them up. Uh, if they have four pitches uh, that are above 50 or something, pick them up uh, in terms of those scouting grades. So that's my that's my answer for the minor leagues because um, it's very different once I get to the major leagues. Yeah, then I'm looking for, although in a similar way, I'm looking for something to pop. Um, so I'm looking for an elite command number or elite stuff number. You know, I'm looking for something because they're not gonna they're not gonna come up fully formed. It's very rare. So the reason I love Zach Gallen and Julio Urias so much is they came up and had great stuff and command numbers have had great numbers while pitching and um, I think will have good careers. They're already, you've seen some injury here or there with them. I thought they would be um, mostly clean slate guys, but, uh, but uh, injury comes for everyone, I guess. But the point is you're going to have to choose. You're not always going to have these perfect command and stuff numbers. And so I would say, uh, a pitcher becomes interesting as soon as they do something interesting, <laughs> you know, as soon as they like, as something, something pops, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think for 
Lizardo, just to run with that example a little bit further, the only thing that gave me some pause is that both the stuff and the location plus numbers, both this year and last year, are pretty average. They're not bad, but they're nothing was standing out in, in those metrics. So how much wiggle room do you have when you see results like that? Again, we're still talking about a relatively small body of work for Lizardo, even throughout his time in the minor leagues because of the injuries he's had. He's thrown a lot fewer innings in the last five years than people realize. How much can you look at the stuff and location numbers to this point from Lazardo and pull down the ceiling a bit? Because even if the previous ceiling was possible SP2, there's a long way to go from that ceiling to, ah, uh, he's a back-end guy. Like, Reliever. he could be a middle rotation guy. Or, yeah, with the the velo bump he'd get on his fastball as a reliever and the secondaries he could choose from, he could be an absolutely filthy reliever. And I think there's still plenty of reason for the A's to try continuing to develop him as a starter a while longer before they even go down that road. But how much do the numbers from him to this point give you pause about where his ceiling truly is? Yeah, I would. It's a great point to, to, to come back to Lazardo because I do think he does. He does have that. He has one thing that he does really well uh, that makes him interesting. It's the fastball velocity. Plenty of ELO. Sitting sitting ninety six from the left is is pretty decent, and that I think uh, sometimes is good enough. I mean, I once picked up uh, Garrett Richards uh, for one of his best seasons early early on, um, when uh, because he had opportunity and velocity, and I think both of those things are there for Lazardo. So, I will continue uh to watch him with great interest because the stuff numbers don't um speak tell a good story but also i feel like you know if you put him in driveline or put him in the right lab um and coaxed uh some better shapes out of his pitches um he's shown the ability to spin it he's shown the ability to uh have a good change up so i think i would get him in the lab and be like we're gonna work on a cutter uh, and, a, and a slow curve and we're gonna put a, instead of this slurve that you have going we're gonna we're gonna try and put some distance between these two and to give you two breaking balls and uh, that's what I would work on with him and uh, I think he could probably do it so there could be like a new Jesus Lazardo who has a better stuff plus number because he's changed the shapes on his pitches uh, but it all started because he's 96 and can spin it a little bit so yeah, and I wonder if that's just a transformation that has to happen over a winter as opposed to something he's going to pick up during his time in the minors. I mean, he could come back and give them good innings, but it may take several weeks of reshaping those pitches before he's going to be the guy we want him to be. He also may have to go outside of the organization and uh, do what I heard a few minor league prospects say at the Futures game, quote-unquote, take his career into his own hands. Yep, we might be at that point for him, but definitely on my list of guys that I'm interested in in the long run. But I think Velo, I mean, you have a you have a list of, of some names here on the rundown. Yeah, I've got I got Michael Kopech, which I think is pretty obvious. Like if because he's he's an injury away from getting that chance for the White Sox. Like they pretty clearly could just bump him into the rotation if they had the need to do it. I think Nate Pearson and Spencer Howard are still like, they're always stuck together in my mind. I think it's because they've missed a lot of time with injuries. They both throw hard. Howard's arsenal is probably a little deeper. So I think that's, that's one thing that would lead me to want Howard more than Pearson. Pearson if I has that plus plus velo. Right. And then uh, you think about the park factors, like pitching in Philly is really tough. And those, so those guys are still on the radar for me. Like if you're not playing for this year and you're looking to the future, obviously they're, bouncing back and forth like right around big league ready they make some sense i think one of the harder guys to figure out right now is matt manning because this has not been a good start to his career home runs have been a problem for him at triple a they've been a problem for him in the limited time he's been in the big leagues he's had arm injuries is this the kind of guy you say you know what there's too much going wrong I'm not actually going to trade for Matt Manning. I'm not going to buy low on him, long-term buy low on him, because I'm seeing too many red flags to actually feel good about it. I mean, there were some red flags in his, um, what is it called, his progress through the minor leagues in terms of injury and results. Um, and I think some people were already sort of pulling back even on the scouting front 
uh, from having him as a, you know, like as a, a standout guy. Um, you know, the Stuff Plus uh, tells a story of, you know, a pretty good slider, pretty good changeup, but around league average. Um, and then a bad uh, fastball, uh, pretty bad fastball. So, I don't know. That's a, an oft told story. <laughs> mm-hmm. The one thing I would say that makes Matt Manning uh, leap off the page for me is uh, his home park. In his last start, he threw fewer fastballs too, and he got his overall stuff plus up to uh, 96. So I think somebody with okay command uh, and uh, league average stuff in that ballpark is still interesting to me. So sometimes it can be he's a tiger. <laughs> that is the thing that makes me interested in that. Well, and I think maybe the shape of Tarek Skubal's early career numbers has given me a little more optimism with Manning than I might have otherwise. And, and Skubal's still having trouble keeping the ball in the park, even though he's pitching a lot better. I think over the last two months, Skubal's got a 355 ERA. 126 whip, 65 Ks, and 50 and two-thirds innings. I mean, that's, in a normal year, that's like good SP3, maybe even SP2 sort of production from Scooble. And he's given up 28 homers and 120 big league innings so far. That's a staggering home run rate for him. So, I mean, is this an organization we should trust with pitching? Is there a reason to trust them? And, And again, the park is obviously part of this too, but... Maybe that should factor into the analysis. I think what Scoobal and Mize are telling us is that their major league pitching coaching is better than their minor league pitching coaching. Hmm. Uh, if you think about what how Mize and Scoobal arrived in the big leagues and then uh, how their stuff looks now, they've both undergone fairly like large transitions, right? Yeah, Scoobal... Changed up his pitch mix a lot already. So did Mize, man. I mean, mm-hmm. Mize like Mize changed the shape on his fastball and went to and changed the shape on his hard breaking ball and went to those more than his changeup. Like he came up as like the guy with the amazing splitter, right? And then in his second year, he came back. He's like, no, I have a really great breaking ball and my four seam is actually good now, and I'm not going to be a sinker guy. So um, I would say their major league pitching coaching is good. Their home park is great, and Matt Manning still has some velo, and he's now working with the guys. So I'm, I'm not saying that Matt Manning is going to do the Mize Scooble. Um, he probably seems the like the least one to bet on of the three, but... Um, Makes him the easiest to get, though. Right, and there's a lot of those, like, what makes him interesting? He at least has... It, that. That's my rubric. Does he do something interesting? And in this case, I would say being a Tiger, uh, having Velo, and working with that major league pitching coach is, are good enough things to make me interested. The other name I was going to write up in the column this weekend that I chickened out uh, because it was just about long-term by lows, Jackson Coar, who continues to pitch well at AAA, but he had one of the most disastrous starts to a big league career that I can remember. I mean, just like literally could not get the ball into the catcher's mitt on every pitch. Like, that was the problem, right? He was bouncing stuff, and he just he was all over the place. His AAA numbers are still good, and stuff in command numbers are not good, but Who's based on Jackson Coar. Like he was, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was so bad that I don't think you can even look at stuff in command because he, he only threw five innings, and he, he wasn't like even throwing his... He wasn't executing pitches in the most literal sense. I'm tempted to say he's a pretty smart buy low because he continues to dominate AAA. Minor league results, I think, do carry some weight. And what's interesting to me about him, well, the opportunity. It's wide open. They have that need for pitching. So I think he gets a chance before the season's over and probably looks a lot better the second time around with the Royals once they give him that chance. I think, again, here, the the thing that makes him interesting is pitches for the Royals. (laughs) I mean... I think their pitching development is probably a little bit behind uh, at least the major league pitching coaching because they're having some uh, some real difficulties in that pitching staff. Um, and uh, they seem to have a type, too. They're uh, very heavy on the fastball slider guy. But Kowar's best secondary is a changeup. 
Um, and uh, he has 96. So I'm definitely interested in him. I like it is weird to see such poor command from a guy that you know only one time in the minor leagues had a walk rate that was worse than average, and that was his like a ball. Yeah, so I think there's more more good than bad in that profile for sure. So he makes the list for the podcast, even though he did not make the cut for uh, for the column. But uh, any other names you could think of that are, are popping in a good way with the underlying numbers, but they don't necessarily have the surface results? Because that's usually when you get those clear sort of buying opportunities. I mean, I mentioned Pearson and Howard. like They're, they're just so frustrating to this point. I, I thought we'd get a little more from both of those guys than we've received through the first half and change now of this season sort by stuff i like to do that i like to start by stuff tanner hauk yeah uh, a glue keeps... guy for boston for sure oh and sam long dude i mean this is sam long would be interesting if he had stuff that was like a stuff number that was five lower you know what i mean mm-hmm. he has a 114 stuff plus and pitches for san francisco like i'm you've already got me you know? mm-hmm. um, and he's coming back this week. Um, uh, Justin Dunn um, still interests me. I know that the numbers haven't looked good, but the stuff and command numbers underneath are, are good. And um, Seattle isn't quite the pitcher's park uh, that I have in my head, I don't think. Um, and I guess he has a 375 ERA, so maybe somebody's saying he already broke out, but. I think there's plenty of people who look at the uh, five walks per nine and say, this isn't going to work out. Command Plus says it's a, a league average uh, command. So I do like Dunn. As long as he gets healthy again, I'm, I'm in on Justin Dunn. Long is a great call because I think the lack of prospect pedigree, the fact that he's already 26 years old, those two things alone kept the interest down in him when he first came up. He's on the aisle with a back injury right now, but... I think he's going to give us good innings when he comes back. I think the Giants need him to provide good innings too. He's kind of a, an extra nice little piece to put into that rotation mix. Yeah, yeah. Still uh, love Austin Voth. Uh, still love Christian Javier, although the the um, command plus number is low, and the team seems to have seems to be okay with having him as a reliever. I don't. It's a they're treating him weirdly. I think. Um. Still have some love for Jameson Tyon. But that's uh now we're getting old. Yeah, we're definitely getting a little older here. I mean, I think the the Javier thing is interesting because he'd be the other type of, of pitcher that fits. We're looking for something interesting, be that Velo, above average pitches, above average command, right? You want something some standout skill. Javier, I think, does have standout pitches, and he doesn't have the role right now. But even though and I think the stuff numbers back this up. Luis Garcia is better than Christian Javier. Christian Javier might be good enough to stick as a starter when there is an opportunity. And those guys who are the next guy up, especially this time of year, this is a great time to trade for Christian Javier in a keeper or dynasty league because if the winner goes by and we have injuries, something changes in that depth chart, and it becomes clear that he's going to be a starter going into next season, it will cost a lot more in February or March to go out and make a deal for him or to draft him than it will to just simply make that move in a long-term league for him right now. And I think he is their next option into that rotation if they lose anybody. Yeah, uh, and then there's the the two Baileys, uh, Falter and Ober, uh, that have their... Well, Falter's having a harder time uh, nailing that role down, uh, but uh, people don't believe in Ober. Uh, the thing that makes them both interesting is standout command. Um, that's uh, maybe not what people expect when they see Ober, who's like, you know, seven feet tall. Um, but uh, both of them also have a little deception in the the way they release the ball, um, like a lot of extension, basically. And uh, so, you know, I think they're good to point out because they don't have prospect pedigree. Um they don't leap out the page on stuff or velocity, um, but they do do something that can make them interesting. Yeah. So hopefully that gives a nice general rubric for people out there in long-term leagues, or even those just looking for undervalued arms potentially for the final part of the season, saving money in fab. Always nice to do that if you can, or saving 
uh, pieces and trade also very helpful if you can pull that off. Uh, it's funny. I, I just think of this. I had this one legendary year uh, in Devil's Rejects where in the draft, so after we'd kept, you know, uh, it's 20 teams, 28 keepers. So we'd, after we'd kept all those players in the draft, I drafted Dallas Keuchel, Carlos Carrasco, Jake Arrieta, and Garrett Richards. Um, all in the sort of 600 to 700 range. <laughs> all the year before they broke out. I mean, that was, they all had that, the next year, they all had great years. And I did them all, like somebody was like, well, what was the rubric or whatever? And I was like, well, Dallas Keuchel had a pitch mix change. I don't know if people remember, he used to throw a curveball and then he went to a slider, I think. Um, and that, and I could spot that in the results and the, with the pitch mix change, I was like, he's a lot better than his overall numbers suggest. Uh, Jake Arrieta and Garrett Richards, I said, well, these guys throw really hard and they both have opportunities. They both are going to go into the rotation. Uh, and then Carlos Carrasco was like, you know, this guy has multiple pitches, throws hard and used to have prospect pedigree. And that was the rubric, really. New orgs, too, I think, kind of factor yeah. in there. I mean, Carrasco getting out of Philly and going into Cleveland and Arietta back in the day leaving Baltimore and going to the Cubs. I mean, new new coaching, like just a new, you know, even if it's a new pitching coach on their own team, you know, I think new coaching is a big deal. Yeah, and double the impact if you get the new coaching and pair it with an easier league and or improved park factors, which I think like was the Jake case Arietta. for Arietta, <laughs> especially. Yeah, like all, all of the things got better for Arietta. Left all Baltimore? At once. Oh, he's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for that question, Bill. It was a great thought starter for today's show. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, you know, let's get to a few more of these questions. We have an inquiry about Max Scherzer, and the question comes from DT. DT writes, on his fantasy baseball rankings, Eno has Max Scherzer at number four, which completely makes sense, except when you consider his stuff plus number, which is just average. Is there something about Scherzer's fastball and slider that stuff plus doesn't capture? Perhaps it's Mad Max breathing in some crazy mental energies to the ball. Thanks again for answering the fan questions, DT. So Max Scherzer actually has a, a good stuff number now. <laughs> we we did an update to uh, to it, and and it's kind of fascinating. We did we added spin efficiency as a feature, and the reason we're doing this is I think ideally you would break spin into two components. And then have some sort of idea of um, how much the ball spins horizontally and then how much uh, it spins um, vertically. And if you did that, you might be able to uh, find out about how different spins interact with each other, right? Uh, but we threw in spin efficiency as a proxy for that uh, because spin efficiency is just... Um, how much of the spin is captured in the uh, movement. But I think it's mostly judged by vertical uh, movement. So spin efficiency is a stat that um, points at the relationship between vertical and horizontal spin. Um, I, I think you could, I think you could almost, uh, express it in spin axis uh, the same the same information um, but 
any case, spin efficiency uh, gave us Max Scherzer's slider as a standout pitch. So now with spin efficiency in there, uh, Max Scherzer's slider is a 121 stuff plus slider, a very good slider. And um, I'm looking right now at the interaction, the feature interaction between the velocity on the slider and his spin efficiency. And there's a grouping of really good uh, pitches that uh, are hard sliders that are gyro sliders. That's basically what um, what he throws, which is a pitch that doesn't a slider that doesn't have a lot of movement, uh, but has a fair amount of spin. And so, it, the harder he throws that slider, the better it is. Um, which is interesting because he also has a cutter, but that's just the truth. So uh, when I look at his stuff plus card now i see uh four really great pitches and the changeup that was supposed to be his bread and butter when he came up uh is his worst pitch now but it's a 90 stuff plus so it's still like a, a decent pitch so uh, what makes masters are good um we didn't uh give his slider enough credit because it's a gyro slider that doesn't uh, move uh, quote unquote as much as other sliders um and the spin isn't turned into movement uh, but it's still it's still very good. Uh, I think it. I think what we're seeing from Masters of the Slider has good late movement because if you throw a gyro uh, slider that um, spins like a bullet and doesn't move a lot, um, as the sort of pitch, uh, as the as the mm, as the arc of the pitch changes, right? Like when you throw it. It's going sort of vert. It's like going hor- like it's going parallel to the ground, right? But as it approaches the plate, the pitch is now it, it takes on like a like a, a curve, right? Like it gets going closer to the ground. And as that trajectory changes, um, the ball uh, will capture more of the spin and move. So if you have a high spin pitch that's not moving at, at this trajectory, when it gets close to the plate and it's falling. The trajectory changes, and so therefore it'll capture some of that spin and move. So there is actually a, a, a like a scientific basis for the the thing that players have been telling us has existed all along, which is late movement exists. I don't care what your stupid machine says, <laughs> late movement exists. And now we're like, oh yes, uh, look at this machine readout. He's right. <laughs> late movement exists <laughs> so i think that's uh scherzer scherzer has a gyro slider uh that doesn't quote unquote move a lot uh but has late movement and our our recent update uh captured that but he's also a guy that has four or five pitches right and the like telling the difference in just in numbers between tyler glass now and max scherzer is very difficult because you have your sort of two elite pitch guy you know, he was better when he added the third pitch, but you have a guy, when you have a guy who has two elite pitches, Patrick Corbin, you know, when they have two elite pitches, uh, how does that age, how does that uh, look compared to a guy like Max Serzer who who has a lot of pitches? So I think um, if I'm betting on someone long-term and I want to, like, sign a pitcher in my dynasty league or something, I want them to have a lot of pitches. I don't yes. want to sign Patrick Corbin. I'd rather sign Hunjin Ryu. I, you know, I don't really want to sign Tyler Glass now long term. I'd rather sign the next Max Scherzer, Zach Gallen. You know, lots of pitches. I mean, if you go back, and we've probably pulled this thread before, but the old scouting reports on Max Scherzer, like when he first entered professional baseball, a lot of them pointed to him being being a reliever. I think in part because of his delivery. It's a very violent delivery with the head jerk. And I think yeah. people thought the command was going to be good enough for him as a starter. I guess when you think about a guy like Glass now, you'd also have to weigh the likelihood of him adding more pitches at this stage of his career. Is it possible that Glass now eventually feels good with that third pitch, adds a fourth? Is, but it took so long, dude. Right. And <laughs> it's it's a tough thing to assume is going to happen. He can still be really good for a long time as is, but he won't be as good for as long a period of time if he doesn't develop that. And more likely than not, he won't develop that. Uh, but it's it's really interesting just because Scherzer, you, just hearing you talk about this, the the gyro slider, 
I always think of a cutter as a, a pitch that has mostly late movement, right? It, it, mm-hmm. just, it avoids the barrel because at the last second, you get that little bit of horizontal movement and guys can't really square it up, but they swing and miss on it entirely. I, I kind of think the gyro slider just has more of like a, a late dropping movement as opposed to that. And mm-hmm. it obviously could move horizontally too. It could move in both planes, but uh, in, in my head, at least that's how I'm, I'm sort of separating. I'm like, okay, a gyro slider has that same, that, that, that last little bite. And that's what makes it so good. And it's interesting that that wasn't entirely captured previously. So were there any other guys that you could think of that, that sort of popped because of, of that adjustment and how that was being measured? Biggest stuff plus changes. Sam Long <laughs> <laughs> went from terrible to awesome. Uh, Flexen, Wood got better. Musgrove got worse. Musgrove um, got worse, hmm. Let me see gyro slider though. I think uh, Stroman maybe. I just wonder how many of those guys have have a propensity to induce a lot of weak contact too. I, I would be curious to know how closely those things are tied together. I do think that is part of it. And then one of the other changes we made to Stuff Plus when when we made that change uh, and put spin efficiency in was um, that we also split each of the events. Um, that it could predict. So instead of trying to sort of train the machine against run value and just um, and just ask the machine uh, what produce, produces the best outcomes, uh, we asked them. We asked the machine a little bit more specifically, like what produces strikeouts, what produces pop-ups, what produces this. Um, and by doing that, uh, we captured, I think, some more weak contact guys. So. Um, you know, weak contact guys that uh, pop for me are Stroman, um, going from 77 stuff plus to 97. Uh, Sean Manaya uh, went from 84 to 103 in the update. Um, Alec Mills went down. Uh, Jordan Montgomery went from 80 to 97. So there are some uh, weak contact guys in here that improved. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the 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 biggest nut for me to crack now um, is to figure out how to reward number of pitches because it's it's not obvious. You know, someone could manipulate their they could have a better stuff number, but only have two pitches, and therefore be you know not a great guy to bet on. So there has to be some way to do that, and I'm discussing that with Max right now. Any ideas, please. Please send them to us. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com, at Eno Saris on Twitter, at Derek Van Riper for me. You guys know the tags hopefully by now. Uh, thanks a lot for that question, DT. Uh, we had a question come in about Chris Sale and expectations for him following Tommy John surgery. And I know Stuff Plus is still relatively pretty new. I'm just kind of curious how much you lose. And we've always, we've known for a long time, walk rates are usually higher for guys coming back from Tommy John, right? The control doesn't always come back right away. Uh, but what are the expectations for Sale once he rejoins the Red Sox rotation? This is this could be applied to any number of starters. I mean, if you assume a normal rehab assignment where a guy has all of his pitches and has velo at or near where he was pre-surgery, can he be himself right away, or is that an unreasonable sort of expectation? We we have some you know, actual evidence research that, uh, that points to the adage that, 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 um, fastball velocity, fastball command is the thing that struggles in the first year, um, coming off of Tommy John. Like there's actual, uh, research out there that, that quote unquote proves that, or, you know, um, at least underlines that as a true thing. Um, so it's interesting. Like, I think we've talked about Noah Syndergaard, Luis Severino, and um, Chris Sale all year in different capacities. It is interesting to say, which one would you have bet on to have the best recovery um, and to be the best in their first year? Because I think they're all great bets for next year. <laughs> uh, but but the, somebody's going to give some value this year. And um, I would say this, Sale had the best fastball command going in. Yes, even if you take some away, that still leaves him at a better point. Yeah, but it is interesting to like to wonder, if you take something, if you take some away from the guy who, depend, like, like Luis Severino was not good because of his fastball command. 
right? Right, right. So what if he comes back and his stuff is there and he's like, well, McCansel was worse, but that was never my thing anyway. So <laughs> I'm just still going to just throw it by people. Um, and uh, Syndergaard could probably say the same thing, although he has sneaky good command. I don't know if people like he always rates it really highly by command plus. But I think like would it be would it be like that much more detrimental to sale because he's used to having the fastball command? Um I think Sale's the best bet of the three. I hope I thought that going in. <laughs> I think I was on Cindergard because Sale was having some early setbacks back during draft season. That's that right. made me think that he might take the longest, and now it looks like he might actually get back. But Cindergard's had, you know, like hamstring type, you know, oblique type. Like he's had other type injuries of just being a large human. Mm-hmm. type injuries <laughs> yeah the the kind of like the Aaron judge problems yeah so I'm not that surprised that uh he's had some issues coming back but Chris sale like seems super frail you know so he seems kind of breakable like a rubber band but like a, <laughs> you know, but well he's he's got the you've described body types in the past as whippy I would say yeah. Chris sale is the extreme of this is a whippy body type that's true it's true. And then Severino is more just sort of stocky. But I, I never liked Severino's mechanics. I, I mean, I, I, do, I try not to mechanic scout because I don't, I'm not a guru. I don't, I don't say people, I don't say terrible things about people <laughs> when they're hurt. Oh, I wish they'd burn a W. <laughs> that's, that's why he broke his leg. <laughs> yes, that, that's why he fell on the stairs carrying deer meat because You're of the right. inverted W. <laughs> it's inverted w. <laughs> I still think it's parody. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I, I I don't think it's a real account. I'm I'm I think it's a, a long it's a long con troll job. Terrible joke, man. <laughs> <laughs> and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Direct TV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Visit DirectTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Uh, but thanks a lot for that question, Mike. There's a question here about J.D. Davis, and it begins, I'm sick of arguing with my friend. J.D. Davis is a fine player, but how good is he really? We're arguing over the small sample size nature of his 577 BABIP in his injury short in 2021. As a result, I'm tempted to fade him closer to his 2020, showing a 247 average, which is the only year he carried a stabilized BABIP of 318. My counterpart argues his X stats uh, point to... In 2019, proof is, or as proof of concept, well, I argue that 355 Babbitt from that year is equally unsustainable in future seasons because he doesn't have Tim Anderson's athleticism. My question and theory with J.D. Davis is the sample. Does Babbitt influence X stats or is a tangible proof of quality of contact that has no bearing on balls bouncing in the right places? Can a player like Davis with great hard hit metrics maintain a 350 Babbitt year over year? with a 51st percentile sprint speed. How do we balance a BABIP we don't trust 
with StatCast metrics that we love. Are we both right? Are we both wrong? Or are we just completely incapable of meeting in the middle? Thanks in advance. I might have to bet a four-pack of Hen House on it. Jordy. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a it's an interesting question, philosophical question almost. Um, uh, he hits the ball really hard. He barrels the ball well when he's healthy. Um, I guess the question is, how unhealthy was he in 2020? And um, the answer is regress, regress, regress. So even if you're looking at, um, you know, his ex his ex xba his expected batting average based on you know the angles and velocities he's hit is 338 according to Statcast. um you know even if you're looking at that you wouldn't take 338 as his projection going forward because you'd have to regress in that 2020 that existed that happened that 2018 happened you know there's other plate appearances happened so um i think the answer is Probably around the bat X, uh, 319 going forward. Uh, Zips has him at 328 going forward. I would put the over under on Babip going forward at like 325. Yeah. And okay, so if he does that. Which is still high. I mean, the Major League Babip is 290. Then what he's done so far might be a small notch above what he's likely to do going forward. His career numbers with a 333 Babbitt are 275, 355, and 463 for the slash line. It's a 121 WRC plus, 23.9% K rate. I mean, if he's just a shade below that, he's probably a high 260s guy with a 340s OBP and a 450 or so slugging percentage. Yeah. That plays. Not a good defender, so that's part of the issue is that he can lose some time yeah if you're talking real life it's um a little bit uh if he's like a 115 uh, wrc plus guy with bad defense that should be uh playing corner outfield or first base um the average wrc plus at first place is like 105 or something so now you're talking about a guy who's just barely above average in real life yeah but in but, fantasy, he still qualifies at third base. Probably going to hit like 265, 270. Uh, I might push that batting average a little bit, but, um, you know, 10 homers. I mean, he's a great pickup right now if he's available to you. Yeah. So to answer the one question, does Babbitt influence X stats or is a tangible proof of quality of contact that has no bearing on balls bouncing in the right places? It's the other way around. Like your X stats, like your X stats, um, there, there is a skill in having a high BABIP. The skill is not only being fast, though. The skill is hitting the ball hard and spraying the ball around the park. Right, and not yeah, not hitting it into the shift. Like that's that's the key, right? Can you actually use the entire field and not just be uh, pounding everything to one side of the field? Because that changes a lot about your BABIP and your expected batting average and your overall offensive production. And also just, you know, uh, not only side-to-side angle, because he's a pull hitter, uh, but up-down angle, uh, you know, you can, you can uh, if you don't hit a lot of 40s or negative 40s in terms of launch angle, if you kind of stay in the right angles, um, and that's, that's what you will see in barrel rate, um, but also something like dynamic hard hit rate um, that Alex Chamberlain has, um, you know, there are certain stats that capture that ability to kind of, um, uh, hit in the right angles a lot. And he seems to have that ability, um, hitting it hard in the right angles. So yeah, you can run a higher BABIP if you have those skills. Um, but we just don't project anybody to have a 355 BABIP. I don't think, like I can look at the projections right now. I'll, I'll even use the bad X uh, rest of season projections. So that's like maybe someone is just spanking the ball super hard, um, maybe oh. Vlad Jr. or Juan Soto could be close to that just because the uh, way they hit the ball, but that, that doesn't seem good. It's not, it's not showing me, but uh, I'll just do Steamer then. Steamer, I think, has Babbitt. And while you're pulling that, I mean, look at Davis's spray chart from 2019. That's power to all fields. That's every type of batted ball hit in just about every direction. So I think he's a very good hitter and a pretty poor defender and i would love it if he found his way into the al or if 
universal DH happens, then you're not worried about that anymore. I think he can hit enough to be a credible DH for several years. I, I, so I think J.D. Davis is actually good as a fantasy player. He is a good fantasy player. He is not quite as good of a real-life player because of these limitations. Well, I am surprised, but... I've just discovered that none of the public public facing projections on Fangraphs uh, project out of Abib. They, they don't put it on the leaderboard, or they don't project it. I'm sure they project it. I'm sorry if I didn't mean to say it that way. I, no, yeah, just I'm just, they don't give. They're it on to the us. player pages. Like they're tucked in on the player page. Oh yeah, of course they are. Like so Davis who, is at 319 from the bad X. That's right. Yeah. So who who would you be? Who is like? Uh, all right. Let's let's do it this way. Who's a uh, major league leader in BABIP over the last three years? Who would you guess? Major league leader in BABIP. Jeez, I think Tim Anderson, who was mentioned in the question, might be the leader. He is three nine five, and Moncada is second, three seventy seven. Turner is third. So there's a lot of speed there. Alec Baum though is fourth with three fifty. That's not a speed demon. Brian Reynolds is six through three forty-seven. Nelson Cruz is your almost JD Davis type, I think. Just a guy who hits the ball hard in the right yeah. angles. Yeah, where's he at? 341, 11th. Hmm. Uh but let's let's look at Anderson because he has the highest one. 395 for his career, or no, for the last three years. And he's projected to have oh, there you go, a three forty-six. That's about the highest predicted Babbitt I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Year over year, looking at that, it, it jumps off the page. I don't, I don't stare at Babbitt's very often, but a 399, 383, 397 running through those last three but years. But there's very little something. in common between him and J.D. Davis. Yeah, they're very different just in terms of the t- types of hitter that they are. I mean, Davis brings a lot of raw power and doesn't run nearly as well as Anderson runs. Davis pulls the ball 48% of the time. Uh, Tim Anderson is our spray hitter. Tim Anderson pulls the ball 33% of the time, goes center 38, oppo 28. That's way more balanced. So Tim Anderson is our spray hitter uh, that has wheels, and he's got a 346. J.D. Davis is our Nelson Cruz type. Let's look at Nelson Cruz. I don't know why Davis is pulling the ball so much this year. I mean, it's a small sample because he hasn't played that much. His 2019 right. distribution is a lot better. A 38.4% pull rate, 37.8% up oh, the middle, and 238 That's, that's what I think of him as a player. Yeah. The projected BABIP for Nelson Cruz is, by the bad X, is 298. <laughs> Even though he holds like a 340 over the last three years. Well, it's the cost of being very old in the big leagues. Yeah, but so anyway, X stats are trying to describe uh, the quality of contact and the type of player a player is, and different types of players will have different BABIPs. Um, I just think that Davis is slightly closer to Nelson Cruz than he is to Tim Anderson. So I doubt I like I I wouldn't project his BABIP as high. No, no, I don't think it's necessary to do that. But he could still be a very good player, even if he's in that three. 30 range or something instead doesn't have to be elevated up at 355 the way he was two years ago but or whatever it, it is now 500 <laughs> yeah 556 uh, come on but I, we, we also you have to move past just like oh 556 babbitt he is bad i mean no he's good he's just not this good <laughs> right and i think hitting 307 back in that 2019 season like that's probably about as good as it can get for him over a full season's worth of games i think if you said, what's the best batting average season that J.D. Davis has left? I would say probably wouldn't go much higher than about 280. And again, I'm expecting more like high 260s from him in a typical year. Good run production, good power, good lineup. And again, a perfect fit for them. If Universal DH is here to stay in 2022, (laughs) that is good news for J.D. Davis. Uh, Thanks a lot for that question, Jordy. I don't know if we actually solved your argument, so maybe you guys should just buy a four-pack and each drink two and just call it good. So maybe you're both right in some ways. Um, Just share the beers and stop fighting, I think would be... That's that's our professional advice. It's usually kind of my advice to most things in life in general. Just just stop fighting with each other and have a beer and you'll feel a little bit better. (laughs) 
Well, on that note, if you got questions for a future episode, send them our way. He's at Eno Saris on Twitter. I'm at Derek Van Riper. The email address again, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we really appreciate it. If you took a moment to do that, don't let the haters win. Hit the like button. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That way you get notifications anytime new episodes are available. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.